Well, good morning, everyone. It's really a great privilege to be here with you. Uh, it's lovely to be in Dundonald, always is. Um, I know so many of you, and so that's a good thing that you're willing to have me back, despite knowing me. Uh, but it's also just lovely to be preaching to people and not a camera. Um, that's been something I've been trying to get used to, either preaching to a camera or to a few musicians, but this is lovely, so uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. Now, before I begin, before we read God's Word together and then we study it together, I just want to pray. Um, always a good reminder for me to pray before I preach is my watch, which tells me that my stress levels fluctuate and they're usually quite high about now. So let's pray together. We all need God's help. Lord, we are all experiencing different struggles, different hardships in life, different blessings and different challenges. And yet, Lord, we all have the same neediness when it comes to your word. We confess, Lord, that our concentration is sometimes distracted. The things of this world crowd in on our minds. And so we come before you humbly and uh, recognize that, recognize our weakness, recognize our complete dependence on your spirit for his help. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your graciousness in supplying us with your Holy Spirit. And yet, Lord, we thank you for this task of preaching. And I know that if I preached all morning without your Spirit's help, Lord, this task would be futile. And so I confess my dependence on you. Help us as we study your word together, as we come before your throne of grace, and as we realize what your Savior has done for us, Lord, the words on our lips this morning as we have sung and the song that we heard remind us that you have given us your son as the perfect substitute for sinners, the only one righteous. And so, Lord, we thank you for this precious word that reminds us and teaches us about these things. God, your word says wisdom is better than pearls and all the desirable things of this earth cannot compare to it. So give us wisdom today as we look at this great message the greatest message, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 52, uh, read from verse 13. I'm going to read from verse 13 of Isaiah 52 because sometimes I'm not sure who put our chapter divisions in there. Um, they didn't always get it right, and I do think that verse 13 starts a separate servant song, which then leads us through to chapter 53 and on to verse 12 of that chapter. So Isaiah 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. <clears throat> we'll end our reading there. There are literally millions of claims brought before county courts in the UK each year. Ours is a society that prioritizes self-interest, so it shouldn't really be a surprise to us that so many people feel hard done by and try to claim for every penny they can get from others. <clears throat> Take Carl Truman, for example, not to be confused with the author and church pro uh, history professor, but Truman was trying to steal his neighbor's hubcaps from his tires, and as he did so, he had his hands run over in the process. Despite his crime of theft, Truman was able to claim a payout from his neighbor's insurance company for the damage done to his hands of about $74,000. We all like justice for ourselves, do we not? We hate to hear of someone getting away with doing wrong. We hate even more, I think, to hear of someone innocent being punished for the crimes of someone else. But that is exactly what Isaiah is describing right here in these verses. The sinless son of God facing the most severe punishment for the most extreme crimes committed by the vilest of criminals, you and I. So how can a just God punish his innocent son? Well, someone has said God's power is at its greatest not in his destruction of the wicked, but in his taking all the wickedness of the earth into himself and giving back love. And I think that's a good quote. Isaiah 53 had importance in the past for those who read it, those in Isaiah's day. It has importance for us presently, as I hope to explain this morning. And how we respond to this servant's substitutionary death in our place determines our future as well. Now, this is not only the message of Easter week that we're looking at this morning, 
This is the timeless message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, today in synagogues across the world, they go through a pattern of reading through the Old Testament, uh, but they never will read Isaiah 53. This is omitted from their public readings. I came across an excellent YouTube video called uh, The Forbidden Chapter, Isaiah 53 in the Hebrew Bible. And basically, people go to Jews and read them Isaiah 53 for the first time. And this passage alone has been used by God to bring many Jews to salvation in Jesus the Christ. And that's not too surprising. Zechariah 12 said, I will pour out on the house of David, David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So the original audience then that Isaiah is writing to were sinful Israelites who felt the heavy hand of God's wrath against their unbelief. They're promised a future Messiah who will come and take their place and take their punishment for them upon his shoulders and secure the covenant blessings that God promised to them. But this prophecy is not just for Israel. No, Paul said in Romans 11, 11 to 12, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, because of their rejection of the gospel of, of Christ, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? And the basic premise of Paul's argument here is that Israel transgressed and now the gospel is preached to the Gentiles, to you and I, those who were not called God's people are now called God's people as the gospel is preached to the Gentiles and God's scope of salvation is brought to us as well. So as we look at this passage, we can marvel at the grace of God extended to us. Ephesians 2 says as much, Remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far away, and that's you and I, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is Paul's gospel to the Gentiles. That is the wondrous grace of God that we come to look at this morning. And we're going to look at how we have been brought near. How was this possible? Charles Spurgeon called Isaiah the fifth gospel. He said, it contains a condensed version of the whole Bible, such as its accuracy and its comprehensive telling of the redemption story. Isaiah's uh, servant song and all of his songs, they are split. And this song is split into five stanzas and they're composed in such a way from Isaiah 52 verse 13 to Isaiah 53 verse 12 that has our eyes fixed on the verses four to six, which we're gonna look at today. It takes the central spot in this, in this song so that our eyes gaze upon it and are fixed upon it. And I want to fix our eyes on verses four to six this morning. In verse four, we see his suffering and our blindness. In verse five, we see his anguish and our peace. And then in verse six, we will see our waywardness and his substitution. So if you keep your Bibles open and follow with me, we're gonna look at verse four, his suffering and our blindness. Now I understand we're jumping into the middle of this section 
leading up to it, the servant's sufferings have been detailed. And we've seen his future exaltation as well from verse 13 of the preceding chapter to verse 3 of chapter 53. His appearance and pitiful nature are detailed. His rejection and his lifelong hardships are depicted, summarized in the well-known phrase, man of sorrows, an apt description for our Savior during his life on earth. But I want us to jump into the why of all of this. Why did the sinless Son of God receive such an unwarranted treatment from the very people he came to save? And the answer is, he loves us. That's the answer. In his suffering, he brought us peace because he loves us. It was his very suffering that would guarantee salvation for those who believe. That is why this central stanza opens with the word surely. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. In the Old Testament, this word surely is often used to convey surprise. Like in Genesis when Jacob awoke suddenly from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. In Isaiah 53 verse 4, the surprise comes from this sudden realization that all of this seemingly pitiful suffering servant's sufferings have not been for his own crimes, but for the crimes of you and I, for the sins of the world. And lest we miss the significance of this realization, let's briefly examine who is speaking here and who is he speaking to. If you've uh, read Isaiah, I think Claire's reading at the minute, you will know it's not a light prophecy. It was not light for the immediate audience and it's not light for us to read at times either. Because it is replete with examples of Israel's disobedience, their rejection of God's ways, their lust after foreign gods, their idol worship, and ultimately their rejection of their covenant-keeping God. Such gross immorality and national iniquity is met with God's terrifying wrath. Verses like Isaiah 9 verse 19, where we read, By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched, and the people will be fuel for the fire. They will not spare one another. Sometimes in the book, Isaiah is declaring the words that God gives to him. Other times, God is declaring those words himself. And we see that in the introduction to this chapter. Back in Isaiah 52, 13. uh, Sorry, at the start we read, God is declaring the Messiah to be my servant. So God is speaking. And when we come to the servant songs, The prophet's original and future audiences are given a sense of great relief because they're being promised better days to come. Days that are made better because of their Messiah, not because of anything they will accomplish. Yes, the book has been scorching in its censure of Israel's sinfulness, but now a promise is made that God will send his own servant who will keep the law perfectly, who will fulfill all righteousness, and who will save his people from their sins. And so we ask the question, how? Through suffering in their place. As I said, chapter 12, sorry, chapter 52, verse 13, shows that Yahweh is the one introducing this song. And he does so by giving his servant the title, my servant. This is the Messiah. The following verse then challenges the typical Jewish expectation, which was, a coming Messiah who would be a warrior, a military leader who would destroy their political and military enemies. But instead of that, 
Mark tells us in his gospel the Messiah would come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now the greatest act of servitude performed by our Lord was taking upon himself our pain and our suffering. Jesus experienced, as you know if you've read the Gospels, Jesus experienced many forms of pain and suffering throughout his life. He'd given up his, his idyllic pre-incarnate state and become susceptible to this fallen world's diseases, family hardships. He lost loved ones. He was abandoned by friends and family. He knew what it was like to be ridiculed. And he even faced assassination attempts. But Isaiah, I think in verse 4, is not talking about these sufferings, many of which are common to mankind. If you look from verses 4 to 6, I count nine descriptions of Christ's sufferings for us just in those three verses. He took up our pain. He bore our suffering. He was punished by God, stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished again, and wounded. Now, some of these nine descriptions undoubtedly refer to his physical suffering, the suffering he would experience in the crucifixion. But verse 4 speaks of another kind of suffering. The wider context is about sin. And Christ took up the pain and suffering that exist because of our sin, and his greatest suffering for our sin was on the cross. Yes, Christ healed many people, but his physical healings pointed to the superior healing from sin, which he accomplished on the cross. And Peter said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And to bear something is to take the full weight of it upon yourself. Now, some theological terminology is helpful here. We like to refer to what Christ has done as the substitutionary atonement. Simply, Christ became our substitute and stood in our place. And by dying in our place, he died for our sins, not his own. And he secured our atonement, that payment that was necessary to satisfy the wrath of God. And as the hymn writer explained it with an eloquence that I could not match, bearing sin and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, Hallelujah, what a saviour. The physical suffering in our place was immense. But the spiritual anguish that he endured for us as he took the punishment for our sins and took the wrath of his heavenly father is simply unimaginable. So he bore our sufferings. Well, how did we respond? We considered him punished by God as if his suffering was something that he had done. Recent sociological research was uh, taking place in uh, Japanese families, families who had family members with mental illnesses. And the research found that overwhelmingly, a lot of those people who were asked assumed that their relative's mental illness had something to do with bad karma, a Buddhist teaching. It was some fault of the sufferer. And this has been the false assumption of many throughout history particularly prevalent in Jesus' day. Jesus' very disciples believed this nonsense. They saw a blind man, and they asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it himself or was it his parents? It's exactly that reaction that the onlookers had as they watched as Christ suffered on the tree. 
And they thought he was unable to help himself. They thought he was suffering there for his own crimes. This before the Spirit opens our eyes and illumines us to see the truth of the gospel. This is our response too. Uh, This is the response of many in the world today. In the Muslim story of Isa on the cross, they believe that this man Isa, Jesus, was taken down from the cross and someone, perhaps Judas, was crucified in his place because for them, a prophet of God to suffer is illogical. It's like trying to square a circle. It does not fit in their theology. And the Jews standing by the cross at the time accused Jesus of blasphemy. They saw his execution as him being smitten by God and afflicted for his crimes. But let me tell you this morning, Jesus had no crimes. Jesus has no sin. He was murdered unjustly, but he died willingly and he died for you and I. And so that brings us to a a further look at his anguish and then our peace. And we'll start with his anguish at the start of verse 5. Isaiah's prophecy becomes even more specific in verse 5. He foretells more specifically what kind of death this anointed one of God would suffer. He would be pierced and he would be crushed. The piercing is no doubt an explicit reference to the crucifixion of our Lord. The crushing is more of a metaphor. And piercing and crushing are just about the strongest two Hebrew words that you can use to describe a violent death. In fact, the word that's used here for crushed is the same word or a similar word for dust. And in uh, Isaiah chapter 19, verse 10, we read that the pillars of the land of Egypt would be crushed. Same word. So it actually suggests a pulverizing. And by the way, I have no understanding of Hebrew, not at least until next semester. So I'm not trying to be clever here or show off any linguistical skills that I do not have. What I am trying to do is help us appreciate the extent of Christ's sufferings and the emphasis that Isaiah puts in this verse of the absolute agony of our Lord. The piercing envisioned is a piercing through. It's a a penetration of the skin, such as Christ would have experienced with the nails in his hands and feet and the the thorns that we sung about of the crown of thorns in his skull. Now, the usual means of execution in Isaiah's day was stoning. There's not really any way Isaiah could have envisioned crucifixion. But the Holy Spirit inspired the prophet with key details of this future prophecy. And it's so detailed, I think it's fascinating just how detailed and precise it is. As I said, the crushing is more of a metaphor. It gives a horrifying image of the precious holy, sinless Son of God being pressed under the weight of the all-powerful judge of all the world. It's, it reminds me of a, like a, a wood grip, the wood's being firmly clamped into the jaws of a, a woodworker's vice. Or if, like me, you don't really understand manual labor, you can think of it like grapes being crushed underfoot in the traditional winemaking of the Roman days. And this imagery... If you have a personal relationship with Christ, especially, this imagery should be difficult to dwell on. And yet we must. Today's television and film industry seem to be competing for the goriest, most realistic, uh, and most bloody footage to fill our eyes with. 
And as we become desensitized to violence as a society, it becomes easier for us to stomach. But surely that is very difficult when it comes to someone that we love, someone that we know, and someone that we know loves us. Surely if we watched a loved one die a gruesome, painful death, we would be greatly troubled. How much more so then if they were dying because of, in place of, us? So notice the reason for our Lord's agony twice in verse 5. It was for our transgressions and it was for our iniquities. Every word in this prophecy is important. And these two words, transgression and iniquity, are not exactly the same in meaning or emphasis. For example, uh, I used to work with a girl from Yorkshire. And when it was time for her lunch break, she would say, I'm going for my dinner. Now, where I'm from, I think of dinner as the evening meal, as the, the main meal of the day. But for that, she might have said tea. And lunch, tea, and dinner all mean something slightly different. They're not identical, though they refer to something similar. So word choice is critical. And here, uh, we have two different words. And I'll just use David's confession of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah in Psalm 51, which I know you heard preached on recently. And in that Psalm, he says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sins. The word usually translated sin, it means to miss the mark of God's holy standard. The one that's usually translated iniquity refers to the inner character and humanity's intentional twisting of God's standard. And the word usually translated transgression is a willful rebellion against that standard. So what Isaiah is telling us specifically is this. Christ suffered in our place because we miss God's standard of holiness. Our inner character is warped and we intentionally disobey him. But because of that chastisement placed on Christ, we have peace. We have hope. And so look with me at this peace. It says the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Peace. Peace is what world leaders talk about restoring in a conflict zone. It's what my parents longed for when I was in my rock phase of drumming and I lived in the house. It's what Belfast people seek for their head when they're annoyed at someone, give my head peace. And yet all three of these descriptions are really inadequate. Because the word Isaiah is using is shalom. You may be familiar with that word. It's one that Jews still use to greet, them, greet each other with. It does mean peace, but it's more specific than our common understanding. And so I uh, did a bit of research, and I found a rabbi who was able to show the contrast between peace and shalom quite well. He said, one can dictate a peace, but shalom is a mutual agreement. Peace is a temporary act. Shalom is a permanent agreement. One can make a peace treaty, but shalom is the condition of peace. Peace can be partial, but shalom is whole. Shalom then is what Adam and Eve lost when they disobeyed God in the garden and when their sin and disobedience entered the world through them. And since then, humans have never been able to achieve shalom, real peace, on their own. Uh, dozens of children last summer, I think it was, were, were shot down in Chicago as it declared 
its most violent month in almost three decades. Around the same time, you may remember the news told us about what happened in Beirut with a warehouse full of ammonium nitrate causing an explosion that killed hundreds of people, destroyed thousands of homes. Then riots filled the streets and Lebanon was, was full of rioting and looting. And even these didn't really compare to the ongoing riots in the American cities at the time. And Richard's already prayed this morning for Burma. It still seems like there's no peace anywhere. I thought last year was the worst year in my lifetime for watching the news. It just seems like there's no peace available, but there can be, and that is what this verse is about. There is peace available. But to know how we can receive real peace, I think we need to understand something about the war, and it's a war in the human heart. We have willfully rebelled against God's standard, the standard of holiness that the Bible tells us all mankind is born in rebellion against. Our inner character is spoiled by our sin and our pride. We exalt self and we intentionally twist God's standard. We run to all that he has forbidden, things he has forbidden for our own good. And we essentially elevate ourselves to a position where we think that we know better than the very creator and sustainer of the universe. And so at this point in the prophecy, and if you've been reading Isaiah 50 and onwards, you're expecting Isaiah to tell his listeners that God's son will come to utterly destroy them, to pierce and crush them for their sins. But instead, Christ came and on this earth, he declared, this is my body, which is given for you. And elsewhere, father, forgive them. This is how the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The language of punishment being laid on Christ here seems to be borrowed from Leviticus 16. You don't need to look it up, but I'll read from 21. Aaron is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness. The goat will carry on itself all their sins. Christ's wounds meant our healing. And Isaiah's hearers understood this reference to Leviticus, but they knew that goats had to be slaughtered year after year for their sins. But Isaiah is saying, this suffering servant, his punishment will bring you lasting peace. It will be a once for all sacrifice. Because the sinless savior died, my soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The Lord Jesus Christ the Messiah, God's chosen one, never missed the mark, never missed God's standard, and his suffering in our place, therefore, is enough. So if you do remain in your sin, I would urge you to run to him, confess your sin and your unworthiness, and accept the offer that he makes you today for salvation. It's full and it's complete forgiveness. The debt that you owed, paid for in full, and never to be held against you. This is the wonderful gospel that we proclaim. This is the incomparable beauty of the gospel message. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10.10. And so we've seen the peace. And now we come to our waywardness and his substitution. And this is my last point. Our waywardness, his substitution. And have a look at verse 6 with me. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we've seen so far, verses 4 and 5, that the pain and suffering was that of both physical and spiritual torment. And we have noted that the kind of suffering was that execution by crucifixion, and that it was because of our sin, not his. And that is what is mentioned again in verse 6. But the focus so far has been on the innocent servant. Here I think it shifts to us, the culpable ones. That God placed on his son the iniquities of us all means that all of us have iniquity without exception. Paul said, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And sin corrupts all of us absolutely and it corrupts absolutely all of us. In 1 Kings 8.46, there is no one who does not sin. Very clear. The psalmist added, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So then, how does Isaiah's comparison of us to sheep help explain what we are like? Well, allow East African shepherd Philip Keller to tell us. This is how he describes the stupidity of sheep. A fat sheep lies down comfortably in a depression in the ground and rolls onto its side to stretch. Its center of gravity shifts so that it turns on its back and its feet no longer touch the ground. It panics and paws frantically, making things worse so that it is impossible for it to regain its footing. As it lies there, gases build up in the rumen cutting off blood circulation to its extremities. In hot weather, the sheep can die like this within hours. If it is cooler, it can survive in this helpless state for days in constant pain. And the point Isaiah is making is, we are all like this laughably helpless sheep. We have all turned away, fallen on our backs, helpless Seeking comfort and short-lived pleasure, we tirelessly pursue things that bring us a quick thrill, and we disregard the consequences, however life-threatening. And most people refuse to accept this. They're too proud to admit that they need a savior and too stubborn to reach out and embrace the life-saving offer of forgiveness that he gives to us. And that is how we all were before Christ opened our eyes by his spirit. On these verses, have life or death implications for us. If you have gone astray, if you have turned to your own way and you're living for yourself and not for God, you should not wait to respond. Confess your sin, as I said earlier. Recognize your spiritual blindness and the reality of your sin. Repent and accept the offering of his forgiveness today. If you look at verse six one more time with me, it's enveloped with the words, We all and us all. We all are lost, totally powerless to save ourselves, yet God has laid on his perfect son the iniquity of us all. Knowing that a holy God cannot permit sin, that he cannot abide sin, how does he solve the problem? Well, he does not ignore it. He does not excuse it. He does not compromise his righteousness He fully satisfied his wrath and his justice by punishing his son in our place. Alistair Begg said, It is because God's wrath is real that his mercy 
is relevant. In other words, if God's wrath is not real, then his mercy is irrelevant. We need God's wrath and his mercy to be real. And we needed someone to take that wrath for us because none of us could ever bear it. And so Jesus Christ, his servant, willingly took the pain of that wrath and his punishment has brought us peace. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 103 can say, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And if you will put your trust and faith in him alone, confessing your sin and recognizing his victory over your sin, you can join that psalmist at the end of the same Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul. I know I've, I've repeated myself today, and I don't apologize for that. But in case my words have been unclear, let me just read from the Spirit's inspired word who explains this great substitution best. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. <coughs> God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin for us. Not literally, but God treated his son as if he were sin. God cannot abide sin or be in its presence. And so Christ being made sin for us highlights the extent of God's abandonment of his son at the cross. And if you think I'm exaggerating, remember what Jesus said on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> and the gospel writers tell us he cried this out with a loud voice. This is a passionate exclamation. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So he became sin for us and he became a curse for us. And what's the result of Christ bearing our pain and our suffering? Colossians 1.21 Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Alienation from God is replaced with reconciliation to God. Condemnation because of our evil behavior is replaced with a new standing with God where we are considered holy and blameless in his sight. Pardon me. I just want to bring things to a close. A couple of weeks ago in our church, we had a Zoom prayer meeting, and we had a Kenyan pastor who's been watching our services online for a few years, and he decided to speak to our church on this very passage. I had already been preparing it that week, so that helped me and affirmed me to know this is the one to preach in Dundonald. He guided us through these verses in such a simple way but it really helped me consider the wonder of the cross. He said, think of the one that you love, the one that you love most, perhaps a child, and imagine how you would feel if the worst thing imaginable happened to them, that they were killed, and you knew who killed them. Now replace that person that you were thinking of 
with God's perfect son and recognize that he hanged there willingly for you. And as he hanged there on the cross, he declared, Father, forgive them. If you are trusting in Christ as your shepherd, as your savior and your Lord, praise him with me as his spirit reminds us of what he has accomplished for us at the cross. In an uncertain world, rest in the certainty that your sins are forgiven. The punishment for your transgressions, that has been laid on him and you're cleansed forever. Picture yourself standing in the great courtroom of God's justice. You know you're guilty of every accusation brought before you. The room's full of witnesses, all the people that you've ever lashed out at, anyone you've ever cheated, lied to, gossiped about, lusted over, or offended in some other way. They know you're guilty, you know you're guilty, and God knows you're guilty because he's known your heart from day one. And yet, his servant, his flawless son, he is the one who's punished by God in your place. The relief that you would feel would be impossible to verbalize. Rather, you would bow down before him, your savior, and gladly offer your life in service and as your necessary worship for all he has done for you. And so let that be our response today to the one who has taken our sin and the punishment that we deserve to set us free. Amen. We're going to sing our closing hymn. And then we will go to the table. <clears throat> what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus.